Gresham College presents The Challenge of Big Data by Professor Christopher Budd. So, um, welcome to the Gresham College lectures, and I am Chris Budd. I am the Gresham Professor of Geometry. Um, I'd especially like to welcome anyone who hasn't come to any of my lectures before. Um, I'll be doing a series of lectures um, on a number of topics all on the general area of maths and the modern world. In fact, my series is called Maths and the Making of the Modern and Future World. Um, The next lecture is going to be on maths in the movies, and then we're going to talk about maths and food, and maths and energy and various other things. Um, But today, my subject is the challenge of big data. So I can simultaneously make two announcements at this point. Um, If anyone here has a mobile phone or a smartphone, my first announcement is to turn it off. But the second is to say that if you have one of these, then you are currently engaging in a big time with an enormous amount of data. So big data is very much in the news, and it's all around us. As I say, if you have a smartphone... You have a huge amount of data currently coming into you. Um, If you have a laptop um, or if you've got Google and use that, you are interacting with big data. And the scary thing about big data is that nowadays we're generating it all the time. um, And almost everything we do is generating big data. Just getting on the train today and somewhat tortuously getting here with a rather difficult journey, um, I was generating data. And all of that data can be analysed. It can be analysed, and people are out there analysing it as we speak. Um, It's been advertised. The BBC had on its website recently an advert, which, well, an article which basically said, in slightly modest terms, big data will cure cancer. Okay, that's what they said. Um, Big data, it's used to fight crime. It actually is. But in this talk, I'm going to sort of have a look at the hype behind big data to see whether what's said about it is true or not. And also, I want to have a look at the issues that it raises because there are many ethical issues that come into the business of people collecting data about us and using it to analyse our lives. But just to illustrate what big data means, um, my wife and I did some intensive research recently, um, and we went to the movies, and we watched Bridget Jones's Baby. I don't know if any of you have seen that, but it's a very good movie if you're a mathematician, because unlike most movies, one of the um, heroes in it, this chap over here, is a mathematician. It's not often we get into the movies. Um, My next lecture in January will talk about maths in the movies. So here's Bridget Jones. She has to decide between this guy and Colin Firth. And the point is, this guy's a mathematician, and he's made an enormous amount of money because he claims he's developed an algorithm, and if you type all your data into his algorithm, it will tell you with a uh, high uh, degree of reliability whether you are dated, suited for the next date. So Bridget Jones types all the data and finds out she should marry him, but of course she ends up marrying him instead. Okay. So the question is, 
Is it actually possible to pick your next date using big data? Um, and is this good? Okay, so well, what happens after you've dated someone? Well, the next thing that happens is this. Uh, you may become pregnant. Um, and again, this hit the headlines recently. Um, a girl uh, was sent a whole load of advertising material by Target. Those of you who don't know Target, Target is the big retailer in uh, America. And they sent a whole load of stuff saying, this is what you should do, now you're expecting a baby. Now this came as a bit of a shock to her, because she didn't know she was expecting a baby. <laughs> it came as even more of a shock to her father. Um, and the point was that Target collects data when you shop. And it collected data from this girl. And it worked out that because of the sort of things she was buying, just because how she was feeling, that was consistent with someone that was pregnant. And therefore, they sent her more stuff about whether she should um, get stuff for a new baby. So they knew she was pregnant before she did, and certainly before her father did. Um, so here's a, a quote. It must be true. It's from the Daily Mail. Um, <laughs> so... Um, after narrowing in on their customers' needs, Target's mum and baby sales skyrocketed. In other words, by identifying people's preferences and identifying what advertising they should get, the um, sales um, went through the roof. Okay. So the question is, this is data we're generating all the time, simply by shopping, but are we happy that the analysis of that data is um, intruding on our privacy. So what I want to do in this talk is talk a little bit about how this data is generated, how this data is analysed, and towards the end, we'll have a look at some of the ethical issues um, that, it, that it actually raises. OK, so where, in a sense, does it start from the UK? Um, as far as I'm concerned, um, my own kind of involvement with this came back in 2013 uh, when the then UK Minister for Science, David Willetts, um, who's sadly no longer a minister because he was actually quite good, um, had a big launch of what he called eight great technologies. So these are eight great areas where he felt we should put investment of money and resource into the development of research and the development of technology. And this is the um, government report, which came out in 2013, which got a lot of us very excited, myself included. Um, and what happened with this report was uh, a, a, a thing called the Policy Exchange Think Tank um, reviewed a whole load of growing technologies and... Um, decided which of those growing technologies it should focus in on um, for its eight great technologies. Um, in fact, later on in this uh, lecture series, we'll be looking at some, um, quite a few of these technologies. And it made it onto the list to say if it was important. Um, we were already doing it to some extent in the UK. Um, it wasn't just for science, it would lead to technology. And there was popular support amongst the various um, people that they canvassed. And they were um, very keen to put money into this, um, promise of 600 million immediately 
and up to one and a half billion of new investment. So from the university point of view, this was very important for us because this showed us um, areas that the government wanted to invest in and where they thought research was going. So that was the eight great technologies. And here's the list that they came up with. Um, so we start with today's topic, which is big data. Uh, we go down satellites and robots, genomics, medicine, agri-science, materials, and finally, energy. So just a quick advert. Um, I'll be talking about agri-science in February, uh, materials, uh, the one after that, and energy, the talk after that. So that's partly where my list of lectures have come from. Um, but the key thing about this list, as far as I was concerned, was that um, first on that list is the subject of big data. The government put it first, and I felt rightly put it first, identifying it not only as the most important of the areas that they saw should be important to invest in for modern technology, but also big data is the one which underlines every single other technology. All of those other technologies would not work if it was big data. So the question is, really, why is big data first on the list? Why is big data first on the list? And the reason is, very simply, that the modern world is a world of information. So let's look at some of the sort of things around. Um, these are books, of course, which uh, we still all read and were the primary data technology up to about 100 years ago. But since then, we've seen this explosion in data. So um, 30 years ago, we all listened to music on LPs and cassettes. Now we have iPods and things like that. A typical iPod will store 1,000 songs. A thousand songs. You know, that's a huge number of songs compared with the 20 or so that you could get on an LP. Um, the data on a CD, there's probably more data on that CD than all those books compare, co combined. Um, satellites can transmit vast amounts of data around the world. Um, laptops, again, can store and transmit data. And all this data can help us understand the world that we're in, and Google can help us search it. So the modern world is a world of information. And I see the 21st century as the information age. If we think of the 20th century as kind of maybe the 19th as a manufacturing age and a technology age, 21st century is without doubt the age of information. And information is data. And data can be analysed using mathematics. And that's why I want to talk about it in a talk in the Gresham Professorship of Geometry series. Okay, so let's see how data's uh, evolved and grown over the years. So at the beginning of the 20th century, the primary way of um, communicating over distance was uh, by um, Morse code. And Morse code, a good Morse code operator, could send about 15 words a minute, um, and that works out at about two bytes a second. Now, if you're not familiar with a byte, a byte is basically a character. So it's a letter or a number. So Morse code would send at two bytes a second. Um, then we had teleprinters. These were in use during the war, uh, which increased that to about 10 bytes a second. 
Um, and then when I was at school, um, interacting with computers, uh, distance, um, we were transmitting at about a kilobyte a second. In comparison, modern data is coming at us through our mobile phones at a rate of a gigabyte a second. Now, can I just give you some perspective on that? A gigabyte is, um, about, is a billion bytes. A book contains about a megabyte of information. So that means that um, currently, through our mobile phones, we're able to receive 1,000 books worth of information every second. 1,000 books every second. That's an entire library coming into our phone every second. Compare that with Morse code and you'll see the huge advance that we've had in the rate of data coming to us. Um, similarly, in terms of storage, when I was uh, a student at university, um, I had an Acorn Atom computer that could store a kilobyte of data, um, which was about one thousandth of a book. Um, now we can store comfortably a terabyte of information. A terabyte of information. That's a million books concurrently be stored on one laptop. Now, I don't know how big a library is, but I doubt if um, even a decent-sized library has a million books. Maybe I'm wrong, but that means that every laptop can comfortably hold you know, an entire library. It's just a staggering increase in the amount of data that's available to us, the amount of data that we can receive, and the amount of data that we can store. So, is that good or bad? Well, it's certainly challenging. Um, and the, the challenge is, of course, that the more data you have, the um, more information there is, and the more vaguely defined a lot of that information is. Um, and the more data you have, the harder it is to search it, and to control it, and to look for information. So this thing here, you may not recognize what that is, um, but that is um, a sort of an attempt to represent the entirety of the internet. Okay, so the internet is a big network of collected, uh, connected computers and websites on those computers. And the internet is you know, so one sort of vast, almost uh, organic thing, which primarily holds huge amounts of data, um, and the current estimate is it holds a zettabyte of data. Now, you may not know what a zettabyte is, but a zettabyte is 10 to the 21 bytes, and that's one with 21 zeros after it of bytes of information on the internet at the moment, and that's growing fast. So I produced this slide a few, uh, a few days ago. It's probably rather more than that now. So the internet has all of that data, and it's you know, and there's a huge challenge to try and understand and search through all of that data. Um, and one of the real challenges is that the more data you have, the more of it is junk. And how do you search for useful information in what um, people like to call the avalanche of noise? Now to illustrate this, I have a, a person here on the phone. Um, and that person, one of the actually advances that we've made recently is um, phones are much, much better than they used to be, and that's because we, we um, 
code up the data very well so it, it can travel further without interference. Um, but suppose you're on the phone and you're talking to a friend uh, some distance away uh, and you're having a conversation um, and a car starts up outside. Whilst you're having that conversation, the noise from the car is just noise. It's something you're not interested in until you realise that the car that's being started up outside is actually your own car and someone is stealing it and then the person that you're talking to becomes noise. Okay. So with data, it's always hard to work out what you need to know and what you don't need to know, what's useful and what's noise. And that's one of the big challenges that we have in processing and understanding data. And I'll come back to that um, as we get through this talk. Okay, so there is lots and lots of data around. Um, where does it all come from? Where does all this data come from? Um, well, as I said, the primary source of data nowadays is coming to us from the internet. Um, again, when I was at school, uh, if I wanted to find something out, I'd literally jump on my bike, cycle down to the uh, library, and find someone who had taken the book out already. Um, now you just go onto the internet and click, and the information's all there. Um, and here's a rather nice picture of the world. Um, so um, the uh, hexagons here represent a million users of the internet, um, and the countries are described in terms of the size of the number of users, and they're coloured in according to the uh, uh, penetration of the internet. Um, and what is really interesting is that the UK, here we are, we're just about the biggest user of the internet. Um, and in terms of um, internet usage per, uh, as a proportion of population, we are the biggest. Um, we currently have over 80% of our population is connected to the internet. Over 80%, which is an astonishing amount if you think that the internet's only been going for about 20 years. Um, and certainly much greater penetration than the US uh, and many other countries. So we are getting a huge amount of data to us in the UK. Um, of course, we could argue that the UK was where big data all started. Um, one of my um, things I like saying is that um, one of the pioneers of big data in the 19th century was no less a lady than Florence Nightingale. She was one of the first people to really introduce modern statistics into uh, the modern world, um, and it's all sort of come out from there and the development of the computers as well. So there's the internet. Um, here's another huge source of data. So Facebook, of course, is sitting on the internet, and many of us are connected onto Facebook. And Facebook has an, an astonishing 2 billion registered users. So roughly one-third of the population of the world are currently on Facebook. And what are they doing? They're putting pictures of their family up on Facebook, or their dogs, or things like that. I'm sure absolutely um, you will do that, or maybe you have friends that do that. Um, and this illustrates one interesting aspect of big data. Facebook holds a huge amount of data. Um, we reckon about two and a half billion pieces of content, 500 terabytes are put onto um, Facebook every day. But that data isn't numbers, it's not words, it's not books. That data is all there nearly as pictures. 
So the huge amount of data on Facebook is pictures. Um, they say a picture tells a thousand words. Well, a picture takes up about three megabytes of space on Facebook, which is about the same space as three whole books if those books don't have pictures in them. So the amount of words in a book only makes up about one-third of a picture on Facebook. Um, and one of the key issues um, in terms of understanding and interpreting data is how on earth do you search through something where the information is encoded as pictures? Okay, so the, there's a big challenge there with dealing with that nature of data. Um, Google is uh, kind of the world leader in dealing with data. And here's the uh, estimate of Google. It holds between 10 and 15 exabytes of data. That's a million terabytes. So a terabyte is about a, a laptop. So um, an exabyte is a million laptops, and that's how much data Google currently has stored. Um, there's a lovely book called um, What If, which is a kind of book of um, questions that you ask, and then they answer them in a sort of scientific way. Um, and one of the questions was, um, if Google were stored as punch cards, which, by the way, is how I used to store all my data when I was at university. How many punch cards would you need? Um, well, enough to fill the whole region of New England to a depth of just under three miles. So that's how much data there is on Google. Um, I got into trouble when I was a student by clogging up my rooms with all the punch cards I had. I'd need three miles depth of it to hold, hold a Google. Um, quick advert for mathematics here. Um, despite the fact that you've got um, all those punch cards, Google is able to search through them in seconds, and it does it by looking at large matrices and looking at eigenvectors of large matrices. Um, when I was at school, I was introduced to these things called matrices. Everyone thought, what's the point of that? Who can be interested in that? Two people, Mr. Brin and Mr. Page, thought, oh, these might be useful in searching the internet. They founded Google, and they're now worth many, many tens of billions of dollars, each of them, for using something which at the time was thought to be useless. So that's not bad. Um, and again, shows that maths is kind of not as useless as people think. So that's Google. Um, mobile phones. Uh, again, we are generating data every time we use a mobile phone. We also are interacting with data every time we use a mobile phone. Here's a very scary statistic. There are now 7 billion phones in use in the world. To be precise, there are 7 billion mobile phone subscriptions in the world. That's more than people. There are more mobile phone users in the world than there are people. I just want to again think about that. Um, when I, again, when I was a student in the 1980s, I remember I was um, president of that august body, the Cambridge University Wireless Society. We had a talk by someone from British Telecom who told us about what he referred to as Captain Kirk communicators. He said, this will be the next big thing. We waited a few years, and here it is. That's the mobile phone. Um, it's a huge technology which allows us all to interact with the internet, with Facebook, and everything else. And, of course, with each other. If there are 7 billion phones in use in the world, then you've got um, that number of possible conversations all happening at once, which is a lot of people talking to each other. Um, 
It's going to change and get a lot bigger. This is my own area of work actually at the moment is the next generation of mobile phones which is going into what's called 5G. Your current phone will probably be 4G or maybe 3G but we're moving into 5G. Um, 5G has a, a frequency of 70 gigahertz which allows a huge amount of information to come through um, and this is where the gigabyte, uh, you know, gigabytes of information will be coming through to us um, when 5G hits us, which will be very soon. Um, 5G is in use currently in only one city in the world, and that's the city I live in, in Bristol. So if you go down to Bristol, you can go to a place called the Brunel Mile, uh, where they've installed 5G on the lampposts, and you can interact with this vast amount of data. Alternatively, you can say hello to Gromit over here. <laughs> okay. Um, so that's mobile phones. Here's uh, another uh, place data's coming from, the smart grid. So we have recently had installed in our house uh, a smart meter. And the smart meter is very useful because it means that if we cook lunch on the electric cooker, it'll tell us how much it costs us to cook the lunch. Okay. It sends that information back to the energy provider, and then the energy provider is getting information from all of us approximately every 15 minutes. And that information is telling the energy provider how we're using electricity. Now that has both good and bad aspects to it. The good aspect is if the energy provider knows how we're using electricity, then they can send us much more precise bills and they can also target energy to us in a more efficient way. So we use less power to generate the energy and thus we create less pollution and thus we save the planet. So that's good. The bad news is we're telling the energy provider every 15 minutes exactly what we're doing in our house. So you might want to dwell on whether that's good or bad. Um, and again, one of the lectures that I shall be giving next year, I will talk um, in quite some detail about how energy is provided to us, how we use it, uh, and how um, we avoid um, having things like power cuts and so on, and how energy is going to evolve in the future. Um, and last but not least, uh, as a source of big data, and possibly the biggest source that's going to come, is the data that comes from our genes and the data that comes um, from looking at how genes interact. Um, and you know, anything we generate electronically is going to be big, but it's going to be essentially nothing compared with the amount of information that you get out of um, genetics. Um, and why is this important? Well, it's understanding this information and so on um, that in part may help us to um, cure diseases in the future, um, things like cancer. So that, that's, again, a good thing. Uh, why is it a bad thing? Well, every time we visit the doctor, every time we buy um, a packet of aspirin at the supermarket, um, every time um, we monitor our health electronically in some way, we are generating that data. That data can be used to help cure us from diseases, but again, is giving other people information about our private lives. And we might want to uh, decide whether that's a good or a bad thing. Okay, so that's where data's coming from. So what are we going to uh, do with it? Well, these are various of the things that you might want to do with all the data. Um, and this is things which big companies out there are currently doing with the data. 
So the thing which we're most used to is ranking data. Now what that means is if you have a vast amount of stuff out there, um, can you identify that bit which is of use to you? And this is what Google does. Google, if I type, I want to learn about um, pink elephants, I type pink elephants into Google, and it looks through all the websites in the world which refer to pink elephants, and it ranks the ones which it thinks are most important, and then that's what it puts up in front of me to look at. Um, and even though there might be millions or even billions of websites out there on pink elephants, probably millions rather than billions, Google has this wonderful algorithm based on matrices which allows it to search through and provide the information which will be of most use to me. And that really is useful. Ranking information, finding what's important is, is one of the most important things we do with data. Um, next thing is identifying stuff. And this is what um, companies like Target do. So Target gathers lots and lots of information about people, their shopping habits and uh, maybe their transport habits and stuff like that. Um, and it identifies within this huge pile of stuff um, kind of different types of people. Um, so it might identify customer preferences or customer sentiments. So it might, from all this information, work out those of you who really, really want to buy bars of chocolate. Okay. And it, and it does that by getting information from all sorts of things and building up a picture. So um, this is um, the identification thing, and that's how it can then make these personalised recommendations, which again can be very good. If you go, if you go onto Amazon and you look for the, a book, um, you know, uh, I might, for example, want to buy a, a book on the maths of music, um, and um, it would then say, ah, but customers who bought this book also bought all these other books, and some of those actually you might want to buy. And it's doing that by this sort of process. Um, but it also has this darker side that it's finding things out about you which you may actually not actually want other people to know. But that information is all there and it's being assembled from what's going on. So that's the identification thing. Um, then you can model things. This is absolutely what I do in my own work. Um, that you, you use uh, all this data to try to build up a model for how things might operate um, and use that model to predict things. Um, so um, my, most of my work is in weather forecasting. I'll come on to that in a minute. Um, but you might also predict health trends and un understand uncertainty. Um, something which I think is quite small at the moment but it's going to become very, very big is uh, the business of constantly monitoring things. So again, when we go on to 5G, um, I think it's very likely that the 5G technology, the phones that we have, will be able to monitor us all the time, monitor our health, and you get messages on your phone like, I wouldn't go to work today, you're not feeling well enough. Okay? And it might send the message to our employer, don't expect this person to not work today, they're not feeling well enough. Okay? So I think that's going to grow. Um, the other, another area where monitoring be important is in driverless cars. So a car will be constantly monitoring its environment and interacting with all the other cars around there. Um, and the final thing you might want to do with data, and this is what the energy suppliers are doing, is use that to optimise the way things you're doing to cut down uh, on waste. Um, and again, they're 
a very, very positive things to this. Um, um, it's estimated about a third of the food that's produced in the world is, is wasted because it's not got to the right people at the right time. And if we could gather the data about food better, we could probably reduce that wastage quite a lot and thus feed people better. And this is a subject I'm going to talk about in my talk on agricultural science, which will be in February. So these are the various things that you basically might like to do with data and, of course, many other things um, besides. Um, but there are challenges. <clears throat> so let's have a look at some of the challenges in doing this. Well, there's a very obvious challenge, um, and the cha one of the biggest challenges there is with big data is the fact that it is, it is big and it is getting bigger. Um, so um, this is the size. Uh, exabytes at rest, so here's a, uh, in order to uh, see what things are. Um, mega is 10 to the 6, down to zeta, which is 10 to the 21. Um, so currently, there's a, uh, this is what Google's dealing with, an exabyte of data. That's how much data it has to deal with at one time. Um, but more trickily, we also have to deal with data coming in. So gigabytes per second with the uh, uh, 5G revolution which is um, a zettabyte PS. That's how much information is being added into, our, uh, into, our, um, into the internet. Um, and that is a vast amount of data. Um, computers are constantly having to evolve to deal with this data as it increases and increases. Um, so I work a lot with the Met Office. Um, we are talking about exabyte computing. That's the amount of data that we want to deal with in order to uh, look at things like climate change and so on. The problem with that amount of data is that you need an industrial strength power supply, basically almost a, a small power station to run the computer to deal with that amount of data. Um, the irony of it is that we're doing calculations on global warming and the power that we're using to produce these calculations is contributing to global warming. So that's a bit of a problem. So those are some of the challenges. Uh, another challenge, and this is the one I, I referred to earlier, is that the data that we're dealing with generally isn't numbers. It's generally pictures or, or things like customer surveys um, or vague uh, things about sort of what people are like and stuff like that, or people talking on the mobile phones whilst walking down the street type data. Um, so the data we're getting is garbled, it's soft, it's very noisy, um, it's... it's qualitative, it's not absolute numbers, it's saying I think something is better than that. Um, and just dealing with this kind of nature, sort of soft data is taking mathematics into whole new territories, things that we're not very comfortable with. Um, and there's no point in having this data if you can't visualise it, and visualising very, very large amounts of data itself is a problem. Um, putting it across to people without uh, a statistical background um, is difficult. So that, that's um, a challenge. But these are challenges which basically I feel confident that we can address. I'm much less confident than we can address the future challenges. So um, you may have heard of the Internet of Things. So the Internet of Things is where data is, is generated by one machine to talk to another machine with no human being in the middle. So again, an example would be um, you go to your cooker and you cook um, some uh, wonderful Italian meal with lots of tomato sauce and stuff, and the cooker then talks to your washing machine saying, 
expect a heavy load in the afternoon. You know. So um, one machine talking to another, and then the washing machine um, might talk to um, the shop to say, um, oh, they're, they're, you know, these clothes, are, I'm having to wash them all the time. They probably need some more clothes, so the shop machine will then send adverts to the person about their uh, clothes, and so on and on, and on it goes. So um, this business of objects talking to each other with human information, interaction being small is a big issue. Um, there's another issue as well, which is that the more um, the sort of machines talk to each other, the more vulnerable we might be to hacking. So a hacker might be able to hack into our home so we wouldn't be able to use the cooker or washing machine. I mean, that would be really difficult. Um, so, but I, I think, again, all of these are... Um, small compared with the, um, the technological challenges of uh, small compared with the social challenges of big data, um, the business of privacy. So we're giving privacy away. Um, it's not we're giving it away in big amounts that we're telling them all about us in one lot. It's just that you're getting lots of little bits and those bits make up a jigsaw and then that jigsaw gives a picture of what we are. Um, there's a challenge with who owns this data. Do I own the data that I'm generating at home through my smart meter? Various ethical issues that we get onto, and certainly an over-reliance on algorithms. Um, it's arguable, um, not everyone would agree, but it's arguable that the 2008 crash was caused by an over-reliance on certain algorithms. Okay, so let's move on to some of the mathematics. Um, and... As a mathematician, I'm very, very excited about this. Um, mathematics um, has stepped very much into centre stage, into the limelight. Um, the sheer scale of data means that the human aspect um, is difficult and you have to use mathematical algorithms in order to be able to understand it. Here's, here's a quote from um, Amazon. Um, it's like an arms race to hire statisticians nowadays. Mathematicians are suddenly sexy. This is very exciting news. Okay. Um, I like standing up in front of my students and telling them this, to tell them both that they're sexy and that they've got a job at the end of their degree. Okay, by statisticians, I think they basically mean anyone that's essentially numerate and can deal with data. So it is very, very exciting from a mathematical point of view um, uh, that, that this is going on. And, and I want to talk a bit now about the mathematical side of big data, and then I'll return at the end to uh, the more ethical issues involved. Um, so um, in a sense, big data has been around for a long time. Now, this is partly my, a part of my own business. Um, I deal a lot with weather forecasting. So let me tell you how a weather forecast works. In one sense, weather forecasting is big data. And the reason is that in order to forecast tomorrow's weather, um, we need to solve about a billion equations. A billion equations. Imagine, you know, it takes hard enough, long enough to solve one on a, on a piece of paper. We have to solve about a billion um, equations informed by about a million data points. Um, and... That has to be done. We're given about six hours to produce a five-day forecast. So that's, in a sense, a big data problem, having to deal with a large amount of data with um, supercomputers that require large power supplies to work. How does a, a weather forecast work? Well, basically, basically a weather forecast takes a, a mathematical model 
which is a uh, description of the way the air moves around and the air heats up and so on, and combines that with good data from satellites, and it's that combination which produces the weather forecast. And one of my jobs is basically to make all that work in an efficient way and to design algorithms for computers. So when I stand up in front of some of my colleagues and say, I work in big data because I've got lots of data, they say, yes, but that's not really what big data is. And that's not really the challenge. The challenge isn't so much the size, it's the nature of the data. So I want to tell you about another project that I'm involved with, which unfortunately is extremely relevant to uh, events of the last few days. Um, So I'm involved in a project involving tsunami forecasting. And this really is a big data problem. Um, If you want to understand what's happening in a tsunami, there are two aspects to it. One is uh, looking at the the way the water moves. And the way you do that is you uh, develop a mathematical model. It uses things called the shallow water equations. Um, You take lots of measurements and you fit the model to the measurements. And that allows you to predict the speed and size of the tsunami. And this was done for New Zealand uh, in the last few days to to give them the tsunami warning. But what we're trying to do now is the uh, kind of more big data aspect of it, which is to combine this, which is physics that we understand, with putting people into the picture. Because, of course, if you have a tsunami, a tsunami is only important, really, if it's going to hit people and interact with people. Um, So what we're also trying to do is make a model of crowd motion as people run and evacuate from the tsunami um, and record lots and lots of mobile phone data as they're doing that and then put all that together with all that to then advise the emergency services. So this is a use of big data, very, very garbled data, very, very noisy data, people running from tsunamis um, panicking down their mobile phones are not going to give you reliable data all of the time. Um, and um, this combined with that is what we're trying to do. And this is much more the kind of nature of what it's like to deal with big data nowadays, dealing with people in an unstructured way. Um, so um, let me kind of give some further in- indication about how people are dealing with all this mathematically. Um, And I want to talk a little bit about this wonderful uh, subject of what's called machine learning. So what happens in machine learning and uh, data analytics and all that sort of stuff um, is the idea that you have some sort of input, some sort of thing which is producing data. might be people um, responding to questionnaires from a supermarket um, and... They produce um, uh, outputs, so um, different types of people might produce different types of questionnaire. Um, And then you try to fit a model which allows you to relate the input to the output. So this is how the classification process that Target is using works. Um, It looks at what um, people are um, deciding to buy and then it classifies them into different types of customer. Um, And the um, traditional way of doing that fitting is what we call a linear model, where you say that there is this, um, it's a linear relationship, so your input X is related to your output Y by multiplying by number M, adding C, and there's always going to be a bit of noise on the way. 
These are models that have been around for a long time. Um, I think the original idea of doing all this probably goes back to the 19th century with the great German mathematician Gauss. Um, and the way data analytic works is that you have your kind of model, which would be something like this. Um, you put a whole load of known data into it, and that's called training the model. Training the model, which in, in this case will be finding these numbers C and M. Um, once you've trained it on a whole load of data, you then take some more data and you validate it. You make sure that it produces reasonable answers on that. Um, and once you've trained and validated it, then the thing in the blue box is something you can then use to predict with. Okay, so these are the three stages of machine learning, the training, the validation, and then the scary bit is the prediction. Let's show you this in action on um, uh, uh, um, something which doesn't involve people. I thought it'd be less controversial. I'll have a look at climate, which is something I know a bit more about. Um, here is a, a set of data. Here the input is just the year. Um, the output is the amount of Arctic ice measured in millions of square kilometres. That's between 1976, when the satellite went up, and 2011 uh, for that set of data. Um, it looks pretty scary just looking at it. You can see there's been quite a drop in the Arctic ice over that period. Can we make predictions on this? Well, you can take that and you can train your linear model on that. And the straight line which fits through that, uh, the best fit straight line over that period of time, is that green curve. So this is the process of training my model on this data. Next thing we want to do is validate it. So we go from 2011 up to 2015. Um, that's the same line. Sorry, it's changed colour. Um, and we have all the data it was trained on. That's the next set of data. And actually, I felt that was reasonably good, that, that it's, it's sort of doing the job reasonably well. So from that, that's our machine learning. There's no physics that's been put into this other than the assumption of the straight line. Um, but we have sort of validated it. And now here's the scary bit. Now we predict. So we predict, and this is what the straight line does if you go into the future, and all the ice has gone by the year 2100, which is a scary prediction, but entirely consistent with um, this sort of data. In case you think, well, this doesn't happen very much, it's happening all the time. Um, we um, use these sort of things uh, in uh, an interactive way. To when you've got stream data, we call them Kalman filters, um, and they're used in such wonderful things as predicting where whales are. So again, part of my research is trying to save the whales by working out where they are so you don't bump into them with ships. Um, and you can also use it to track and forecast where satellites are. So that's um, linear models, a technology been around for some time, but still very effective. Um, it's now advanced quite a lot. Um, so the real explosion in machine learning has now come about through things called neural nets. So neural nets are um, kind of machine computer programs which attempt to uh, recreate what people think is going on in the brain and the way neurons are talking to each other. Um, and you have basically a series of um, kind of combinations of inputs which lead to uh, various hidden layers and out to an output. 
um, and you can build quite sophisticated uh, types of machine learning. What you do again is you take one of these, you train it on loads of data, and the training means that you try and work out what these links are here, you validate this and other things, and then use that to predict. Um, neural nets are hugely used in vast numbers of applications now to predict what's going to happen. Um, Google um, uses neural nets to place adverts. So when you go onto a Google page, you will get adverts which are just for you. Those adverts will be different for different users. And what Google's done is it's looked at your searching history in the past, identified your customer preferences, and put adverts in front of you. And those adverts are decided by using these things called neural nets. Um, it's estimated that the value of Google to Google of this technology is about $60 billion per year. Okay, these are amazing things. And they're, they're mathematically, they're not actually very, very difficult. They're quite straightforward. Um, but they are having enormous impact. Let's show you some of the things that they're used for. Um, so uh, here's a, a cover of a medical journal recently. Medical diagnosis using artificial neural nets. Um, and what that's all about is using these sort of mathematical algorithms. You get uh, lots of... Um, uh, for example, x-rays of patients with different medical states. Um, you use the neural net to find a link between what the x-ray is and someone's state, and then the neural net allows you to make a diagnosis. Okay, so there we are. These things are being used. Big question, would you want your leg cut off if a neural net told you to? Okay. And it's not a funny one either, because this is actually ongoing decision. Um, they're used in many other things. Uh, uh, Facebook uses them for face recognition. Uh, they're used by government, fraud detection, management, sales forecasting. All sorts of things are now being decided using these machine learning algorithms. Um, here are some big ethical issues. Um, firstly, this is one I'm very concerned about. In weather forecasting, we try to build models based on what we think of as a physical reality, physical laws. Um, the neural nets that are now being used for prediction are not based on physical laws. They're just based on algorithms that you tune to the data. And then this other one, should we really lead decisions about people to these sort of things? Um, is, is that an ethical thing? Okay, so that's uh, machine learning. Um, I just want to whiz you through one other area of maths that's also been heavily used nowadays to interpret data, um, and that's the maths of networks. Um, so data on itself isn't particularly interesting. What's much more interesting is the way data interacts with other aspects of data. Um, and we, we, rec we kind of represent that using networks uh, where uh, you have nodes on the networks representing things like computers or people or phones um, and connections showing how all these are linked together. Um, this is mathematics, which was invented in the 18th century. Um, initially to solve things, problems like how do you find your way through a maze. Um, and now this is the, the math that's heavily used in things like Google and so on. Um, so here are some examples of networks, um, all of which are generating lots of data from uh, Facebook and social networks um, through technological networks, organisational, um, down to the way networks are used in disease and so on. Um, went through that one. 
Um, and the reason these are so important in, in data, as I say, is data on itself isn't important, but how one bit of data relates to another bit of data is vital. Um, and um, by understanding networks, we can, uh, on Google, find out what are popular websites. Uh, we can work out the best way to route ourselves through the internet. Um, if you have data coming in, this is what the Home Office is interested in, of terrorist networks. It tells you how the, the terrorist network might be connected and how resilient that might be to um, taking certain of the terrorists and putting them in jail. Um, and can also work out groupings. And again, this is what Amazon is doing in terms of its uh, working out customer preferences. 18th century mathematics, um, created in the 18th century, now absolutely vital in modern technology. Um, and my favourite application of all is this. This was a picture I put up at the beginning. People may not have worked out what that is. And what that is are the voting patterns for the Eurovision Song Contest. Um, so the countries around the outside showing which countries vote for which countries. Um, by taking that network and what we call segmenting it, you can work out the clusterings in that network and you can prove without any mathematical doubt that it's rigged. Okay, that um, certain countries vote for certain other countries. Everything you believe is true. Okay. Um, and again, just a bit of an advert. This is for my uh, students, but you don't need to see all of it. Um, these are just some of the areas of, of, of mathematics, most of which um, would have been called pure mathematics until very, very recently, um, are currently used in certain areas of the big data revolution. Again, I'm not going to go through any detail. There's more that I want you to see. There's a vast number, and there's virtually no area of mathematics, pure or applied, which can't be used in big data. Um, I want to just to uh, conclude, uh, well, just to finalise my talk with um, this rather important uh, slide, which is um, it's very easy to get carried away with the technological side of all these things without realising that there's a huge ethical issue, um, huge loss of privacy, um, a lot of issues with whether it's right or wrong to work out what we're trying to think, um, and this business that um, decisions are made about us now by algorithms, the users of which don't really understand very well. Um, <coughs> as a mathematician, I have no training in ethics at all. Okay? None whatsoever. So um, I have to talk, if I'm using big data, to people who have training in this, um, policymakers and lawyers. Similar, similarly, uh, people making decisions on big data, the lawyers, the policymakers, the politicians, cannot, I think, make those decisions properly without talking to the computer scientists and mathematicians. So I really feel there's an urgent need for mathematicians, computer scientists, policymakers, and so on to work together if we're going to address these really very challenging ethical issues. So just to conclude... Um, this is what's going on nowadays. Various institutions are being set up to uh, uh, study big data to help with this dialogue. The Turing Institute, which is going to be based in the British Library, uh, just by St Pancras Station, has this as their mission statement. Um, a somewhat smaller, but for me rather important institution because I'm director of it, deputy director of it 
is the Bath Institute of Mathematical Innovation, which is essentially trying to do the same thing. So there are attempts now to bring people together to discuss both the technological and the ethical issues and policy issues of big data. And I urge you particularly to look at the Turing Institute to see what's going on. So my final slide is this. Where's all this heading? Um, big data is going to change our lives. Um, we've seen a huge change in the last few years. That's nothing compared with what's going to happen next. Um, people like me, I think, well, mathematicians certainly started the revolution and should certainly involve in its future, but we can't do it unless in collaboration with others. And I hope that um, I can encourage any policymakers in the audience to um, get involved with this debate and particularly talk to mathematicians about it. So thank you very much. For more information, please go to www.gresham.ac.uk.